Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. My name is Ryan. And I am Rosie. And thank you guys for being with us tonight. Um, before we get started, we want to thank our new patrons, Mariah and Skylar. You guys are awesome. Thank you, guys. Also, we want to thank Brittany and Hannah for upping their pledge. That means so much to us right now. Very much. We know it's a really weird and difficult time for everyone, and you're probably hearing about current events everywhere you look so we're gonna try to keep our show as normal as possible our thoughts are with everyone that's suffering and affected by what's going on but with that said we are making one small change instead of reading two reviews at the end of each episode we're gonna start reading one five-star review at the beginning of each episode i got this idea from the marvel cinematic universe podcast i know i'm a nerd for (laughs) listening to that but they make a great podcast. Anyway, Rosie, do you want to read the five-star review? I do. It's entitled, These Two with a Blue Heart from Rick in the U.S. of A. Riding through life with Rick. (laughs) I often find myself laughing out loud at the two of you. I mean this in a lovable lovable way. Laughter is valuable in any long-term relationship, and you two are able to laugh at yourselves, each other, and together. A good trait to have for a lasting marriage. Your banter with each other is done in a loving and safe way. Some of your pronunciations make me cringe, but it is totally relatable. I feel like I feel like I we I think he means just we. I feel like we are sitting around our kitchen island discussing these cases. Finally, I am two episodes away from being caught up. Riding through life with Rick. I love That's that. Awesome. Thank you. I also want to give a quick shout out to Helen, who gave us so much love on oh, Instagram. Oh, she did. Yesterday. She. I feel like she went through every photo and liked it. I've, yeah, we really appreciate that. Yeah, that was. I sweet. haven't had a chance to respond to anything yet, but we have noticed. So thank you. Um, if you have reached out to us and we haven't gotten back to you yet, feel free to give us a nudge and remind us that you're still waiting to hear back from us because we. Um, do suck at that sometimes. But anyway, we've had a long enough intro here. Let's get into the conclusion of our coverage of Jeffrey Epstein. So as we've talked about, Jeffrey was up to some really terrible stuff from at least 1996 up to the mid-2000s. And that's just like the, the underage sex stuff. That's not including the other illegal stuff that he never got charged for. Um, but he seemed to be able to just keep flying under the radar and never get in trouble for anything. But on March 15th, 2005, 
something happened that would lead to the slow unraveling of Epstein's facade. In February of 2005, a 14-year-old girl was approached by an 18-year-old girl who was a cousin of one of her classmates. And we have no idea what the 14-year-old girl's real name was because it was redacted, but we're going to call her Katie from now on. So 14-year-old Katie was talking to 18-year-old named Haley Robson. Now, Haley told Katie about an opportunity to make some quick cash. And, like, when you're 14, just getting, like, 20 bucks was one of the most exciting things ever for me. So, yeah, this would pique your interest. <laughs> just picturing 14-year-old you <laughs> getting a $20 bill. Oh, uh, please don't. But Haley was offering Katie a job that would pay $200. All she had to do was give an old guy a massage. Haley said that she worked for this wealthy old man regularly, helping him get his daily massages, and Katie accepted this offer. Because what 14-year-old wouldn't want $200? So the next Sunday night, Haley showed up with a friend at Katie's dad's house to pick her up. They told him they were going to go shopping, but Haley drove Katie across the bridge onto the island of Palm Beach. They made their way to 358 Albrea Way where Jeffrey Epstein had the same mansion where he abused Virginia Roberts. I really hope we said El Brio correctly, because, I mean... Two L's I, usually make a Y I heard on one report someone said El Brillo. Come on, I think they Brillo. were wrong. There's always different reporters pronouncing things differently, and it makes it really hard to get the right pronunciation sometimes. <laughs> I think we're fine. Katie walked into the mansion and was introduced to Epstein's assistant, a girl named Sarah Kellen. She recorded Katie's name and phone number in a ledger at the front, and then Katie was shown to a bedroom and asked there to wait. So soon after she was brought to this room, Jeffrey Epstein entered, and things obviously took a turn for the worse. When Epstein arrived, he ordered Katie to take off her clothes before she started the massage. Which would have been so awkward. You just met this person and immediately you're being asked to get naked? That's very odd. And while Katie started to massage him, he reached over and started touching her between her legs. Then he pulled out a vibrator and started touching her with that. Eventually, he had her start touching him and he went on to rape her. So just a reminder, she's 14 years old. Um, but based on what we've been talking about, this has become a standard practice for Jeffrey by 2005. From Maria and Annie Farmer to Virginia Roberts, many other girls along the way, and now this, we just see the steady escalation of what he's willing to try. Mm -hmm. And by 2005, he's just a full-on calculated monster. He had this steady stream of three girls a day, and he had Haley out there recruiting at a school, and Sarah, his um, clerk or whatever she he would call it, arranging all of it, his schedules and stuff. But he also made them do these things for him if they couldn't find someone else. So they were also under his control. It's just a sick, twisted abuse scheme. Mm-hmm. On March 15th, while at school, another girl who knew that Katie had been recruited by Haley started to tease her about it. A fight broke out and was eventually broken up by the school staff. Katie's backpack was searched after the fight, and they found the money inside. 
And it was a suspiciously large amount of money for a 14-year-old to have. Right. Nobody's going to bring that much to school. Right. The school notified Katie's parents, and eventually they were able to pull the truth out of her. The parents called the police on March 15th and reported what she had told them. And even though he had been actively doing this for nine years, this is the... This is how Jeffrey Epstein's activities first started to be taken seriously wow. by law enforcement, even That's though crazy. multiple girls had reported him along the way. Hmm. It's the first time someone took it seriously. The next month in April, they started doing trash pulls at Epstein's house in Palm Beach, and they found evidence that would corroborate what Katie had told them. A slip of paper with her name and number on it dated for a Sunday in February when she said that she had been there. And it was fortunate that those were still in his trash two months later. Yeah, was he got like a dumpster out there? They also found several similar slips with girls' names and phone numbers on them. And one of these notes had a message to Jeffrey from Jean-Luc, who we talked about in episode 98 with Virginia Roberts. He was the French model scout who was accused of procuring really young girls for Jeffrey, like 12, 11 years old. Um, the note from Jean-Luc said, quote, he has a teacher for you to teach you how to speak Russian. She is two times eight years old, not blonde. Lessons are free and you can have first today if you call. What does that mean? Right? It's so weird that whoever took this call and recorded the messages writing in this weird code, but basically it's saying Jean-Luc had a 16-year-old brunette girl from Russia ready to send to Epstein. And this was physical proof of Who that. Who says that, though? She is two times eight. Well, they're speaking in code, so well, it sucks, people though. like you will be like, what? Yeah, but I yeah. get it. <laughs> right. I feel like it's really... I don't know. Like, like, yeah, it's dumb code. Yeah. But still. Hmm. By October, the police had interviewed many people surrounding the situation, including other girls and even butlers who had worked for Epstein. They verified that Epstein had a steady flow of girls coming in and out of his home on El Brio Way. And it's interesting, while they were doing these interviews, one of the girls was just starting her interview when she got a call from one of Epstein's assistants, possibly to make an appointment or something, or mm -hmm. else maybe intimidation. Who knows? But on October 20th, police were able to collect enough evidence for probable cause and they got a warrant to search his Palm Beach home. When they arrived, all computers that had been in the home were removed. So this is really sketchy that all the computers are missing. Reminds me of the Jason Corbett case we talked about in episode 93. But they still found some weird stuff, like a makeshift dental chair that was in his bathroom. Like, what's <laughs> up with weird. that? Why would he need that? And of course, there was a lot of nude artwork on the walls. And also photos of girls posing in seductive ways. But the oddest thing to me was what looks like a plastic mannequin, but the legs are broken off just above the knee, and the top is broken off around the mid-torso. So it's just like the thighs and butt of a mannequin. It's creepy. Hmm. By the time they concluded this investigation in 2006... They had testimony from around 40 different people with very similar stories about Epstein. Their average age was between 13 and 16 years old. But while they were conducting the investigation, 
the investigators started to notice that they were being stalked and followed. They suspect that Epstein was launching a counterattack, trying to dig up dirt on the investigators and the victims, and intimidate them to stay silent. Yeah, one of the investigators was like, if you're an investigator, you know how to tell if you're being stalked. So he was like, he noticed people following him. Very interesting. But in the past, um, we talked about the threats, you know. Who knows how many victims were threatened in the silence mm-hmm. during this time. But despite all of this, in May of 2006, police finally charged Epstein with multiple counts of unlawful sex acts with a minor. The Palm Beach State Attorney turned the case over to a grand jury, feeling like he had a slam dunk of a case against Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, so you'd think, great, they got him. This was back in 2006. Like, after all the underage girls he's violated, he should have a long prison sentence, if not life in prison. Epstein came to a trial armed with the best lawyers money could buy, and several of them. Uh, Epstein asked Alan Dershowitz to coordinate the defense. Remember, he was the man who was accused by Virginia Roberts, which we talked about back in episode 98. In June 2006, the grand jury heard only from one of the accusers, and somehow returned an indictment for one count of solicitation and prostitution. So, how does that happen? It went from unlawful sex acts with a minor, which is a huge deal. Like, the minor factor in there, that's what makes it, you know, a terrible crime. And it went from that to solicitation of prostitution. The problem with that is it ignores the fact that many of these girls were minors. The whole minor aspect is huge. But based on this charge, the grand jury is saying that these child victims were just like any other adult women that were willingly selling their bodies. They're literally putting the label of prostitute onto these underage children and ignoring the fact that they were manipulated into this position using you know, control, abuse of power. And this is more than just solicitation of prostitution. Mm -hmm. I think you said that really good. After all the work the Palm Beach Police Department had done to build this case, they were not happy with this charge. So the police chief got in touch with the FBI to start an investigation called Operation Leap Year, which listed the possible crime as child prostitution. Well, good. By November, the FBI was interviewing several possible victims from all over the country. Thankfully, in July 2007, the grand jury issued subpoenas for Epstein's computers, which had been missing during the search of his house. So it looks like things are finally moving in the right direction again here. In August, the U.S. attorney in Miami, Alex Acosta, started disgusting plea deals with Epstein's legal team. The order to produce the computers was delayed. So the evidence isn't coming out, and now they're talking about making a deal, which is typically in favor of the criminal. So obviously they're hiding something if all the computers were missing, but no one's actually like enforcing this subpoena to make them produce the computers. Hmm. So it's so frustrating. In October of 2007, Acosta met with... Epstein's lawyer, Jay Lefkowitz, one of his lawyers, 
at the West Palm Beach Marriott on Okeechobee Boulevard to discuss a non-prosecution deal. Basically a deal where Epstein would not have to face trial. Also, Okeechobee, we just drove by that last month when we were driving from Miami to Cocoa Beach, remember? When we were free, free of this virus. Oh, let's not let's not go there. <laughs> I don't remember. I think you said it out loud and I was busy on my phone playing Best Fiends. <laughs> <laughs> not a sponsor for this episode. <laughs> Any hoodle. The deal stipulate, stipulated that the victims would not be notified about it and that the deal would be kept under seal and all grand jury subpoenas would be canceled. So within this deal, the evidence which was removed from the house before the initial search ever got there basically never has to come out and the victims won't have to be notified about any action that's taken against Epstein. So who is this getting justice for? But... Not even this was good enough for Epstein because it required him to register as a sex offender. Hmm. But this was buying the FBI more time to continue their investigation and seek out as many victims of Epstein as possible. Throughout the spring of 2008, the victims were constantly harassed by Epstein's lawyers in an effort to intimidate them into silence. Finally, in May of 2008, the Justice Department said that if a plea deal wasn't reached soon... Epstein would be federally, federally prosecuted. Which is what they wanted to avoid, which is super dumb. But he could get away with this because he could afford really good lawyers. Um, but anyway, because they decided this, it expedited the whole process and said, you guys got to figure something out or you're going to be facing trial. On June 30th, 2008, they finally worked out a plea deal. And Epstein pleaded guilty to one count of solicitation of prostitution and one count of solicitation of prostitution with a minor. This does not make any sense. Yes, it introduces the minor aspect in there, but a minor cannot be a prostitute because you need to be able to consent to be considered a prostitute. Mm -hmm. But even with this charge involving a minor, it didn't really do much. Epstein was sentenced to only 18 months in a Florida jail, followed by a year of house arrest. He was to register as a sex offender in Florida twice a year. But again, the victims had no idea this plea deal was happening. They weren't notified, and they didn't find out until July of 2008. Hmm. And this jail that he was at was just in downtown West Palm Beach, so literally right across the bridge from his home. Hmm. As soon as they could, they filed an emergency petition to force federal prosecutors to comply with the Federal Crime Victims' Rights Act, which mandates that victims need to be notified about plea deals and have a right to appear at sentencing hearings. Which they obviously didn't uh, comply with, but unfortunately it was too late because the sentencing had already happened, it had already been processed, his victims got ignored and disrespected after all they had already been through because of him. The victims attempted to have his plea agreement unsealed, but they fought back, and this led to a court battle to be able to learn the terms of the plea bargain, which lasted a whole year. Yeah, so they were basically fighting to be able to know what the terms of his plea were. So stupid. His bargain. Because at this point, it wasn't public, and they weren't telling the victims. 
exactly what he agreed to. Just a couple months after sentencing, Epstein was granted work release for six days a week, where he'd be picked up by his private driver from jail and brought to an office in West Palm Beach for 12 hours a day, and would return to jail to sleep. Now it sounds like a hotel. Yeah, so it is. He already got an outrageously short sentence, but now he can come and go for six days a week. And on top of all that, he was able to accept visitors at his downtown office in West Palm Beach. He actually flew in two girls from New York to assist him while he was at work. Wow. So he probably continued to get massages even while he was serving his time. And even in jail, he had his own private wing where he was allowed to have his own private security. And to make it even worse, he only served 13 Hmm. of his 18-month sentence. And you know his jail cell was, like, completely pimped out to the max. Like, cushy. Yeah. And he didn't have to interact with any other inmates. That's crazy. This was not a jail sentence. This was a rich guy getting off easy because Mm -hmm. he could afford it. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. This episode of Voice of the Victim podcast is sponsored by Podcorn. And we're just a couple of inexperienced kids making a podcast about something we really care about. And we never really knew if we'd be able to figure out how to get sponsors. But thankfully, the awesome people over at Podcorn have helped us out with that. As podcasters, we have a message we really care about that we want to get out there. But it takes a lot of work and time. Sponsors help us dedicate more time to working on the podcast so we can do the best we possibly can sharing these stories. It's really helped me personally as I've been making these changes in my life, cutting back on other work to focus more on the podcast. Podcorn is really simple and easy to use. It's a marketplace that connects podcasters directly to amazing sponsorship opportunities like host read ads, interview segments, reviews, discussions, and more. I love how easily we can learn about a business and whether it would be a good fit and then send them a proposal for a specific date. It's super easy. There's no middleman. So podcasters can choose what their specific rate is while also making better quality ads because we can directly collaborate with the sponsors. I prefer when ad breaks don't change the tone of the episode. And that's why I love being able to get in touch with the brands themselves and make host read ads. You don't need to give up creative control or the rights to your podcast to use Podcorn. And the people that work there are always willing to help and work with you to make the process painless. Seriously, they're really nice people and they let creators do what they feel is best for their audience while also securing funds before we start the ads and making sure we're paid when we're done. The marketplace mission of Podcorn is to give podcasters transparency creative freedom, and full control on how and when they monetize their hard work. So if you're a podcaster of any size, click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing opportunities to find your own sponsors. Now back to the show. A detail of the plea deal that came out later is that he was able to get full immunity from future charges against himself and any of his co-conspirators. Conspirators. But, like, why would he need this? Conspirators. Like, there's obviously more to hide if he asks for full immunity from future charges. Right. And admitting he has co-conspirators because that was part of the agreement. So people like Ghislaine Maxwell, Prince Andrew, Alan Dershowitz, and so on. And the defense, or the 
um, not defense, the prosecuting attorney, Alex Acosta, let all this happen. But speaking of co-conspirators, something else came to light in 2010. Yes, flight logs were found for Jeffrey's plane, which is commonly called the Lolita Express. Yeah, so I'm just going to rattle off some notable names and dates of people who were recorded on the flight logs of the Lolita Express. And I'm not accusing them of anything, just reading the flight logs, but on February 9th, 1999, Prince Andrew took the Lolita Express from Palm Beach International Airport to Toulouse-Blagnac Airport in southern France. Do you know how to pronounce that, Rosie? You've been to France. Um, yes, I have. <laughs> but no, I don't. <laughs> I, I believe that. I think I said it right. But he flew to southern France and then back on the 12th. And makes me wonder where Jean-Luc Brunel was at this time because he was Ep- Epstein's hookup in France. But then in 2002, from February to July, Bill Clinton took the Lolita Express several times. Um, and then in November, he took it again with Kevin Spacey and Chris Tucker. Bill Gates and Walter Cronkite were also passengers on this plane. And, of course, we can't forget Alan Dershowitz, who was accused by Virginia Roberts and also coordinated Epstein's defense in 2006, which got him a really light sentence and possibly secured um, immunity for himself mm-hmm. while making this defense. So, again, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but other victims have accused these people of stuff. And other victims have talked about sex parties on this plane. So this is where the conspiracy theory comes from. You know, all these co-conspirators, the conspiracy theory that Epstein didn't kill himself. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the theories say that the sweetheart plea deal he got was arranged from the top levels of government. And we know Epstein was connected to many powerful people. And the theory says that they wanted to squash this and make it as little collateral damage as possible. So Hmm. we don't know. We're just a couple of dumb kids reading stuff on the internet. But this is... Definitely a theory, and I'd say it has a little bit of merit. Mm -hmm. After the plea deal, the only option victims had left was to try to sue Epstein for the damage he caused them. In one deposition to Epstein, a lawyer for one of the victims began a line of questioning that got straight to the point. He asked, Is it true, sir, that you have what could be described as an egg-shaped penis? And you can see this on YouTube. After the question, Epstein casually scratched his neck and looked over at his attorney. Then the victim's attorney was warned that if this type of questioning continued, they'd adjourn the deposition. And they said it was because this attorney was trying to embarrass Epstein. But it's like, if this lawyer is representing an underage victim and what he's saying is true, like, why would this girl know what Epstein's penis looks like? Mm-hmm. You'd think it's a valid question for this type of situation with these types of accusations. Right. It's not like it was just random and out of the blue. Right. Like, where else are you going to ask these questions? The attorney tried to rephrase the question in a more respectful way, making it clear that it was the words of the victim in a police affidavit. 
but they adjourned the deposition immediately, and Epstein was just able to walk out of it unscathed. Again, how are they supposed to get to the bottom of this if lawyers can't ask tough and uncomfortable questions? This is just an example of the way the legal system was coddling Epstein throughout this whole process. No one else would get away with this. No one of normal um, financial means would be able to do this. Mm -hmm. Courtney Wilde was one of Epstein's victims who took action to try to get the details of the plea bargain released to the victims. She fought hard just to know the terms. Then after she found them out, she fought to get them overturned. Because how fair, unfair is it that no future charges could be brought when he's hurt so many people and got off so easy? Mm-hmm. It took 11 years for her to finally win this case. And in early 2019, it was finally ruled that the way the case was handled in 2008 was illegal. But somehow, even after this, the protection of Epstein's co-conspirators held up. So again, Courtney is trying to appeal that. And it's got to be so stressful for her to have to keep fighting this legal nightmare for over a decade. And to finally get a ruling in your favor, but still not get, you know, get all of it ruled in your favor. Mm-hmm. You're still protecting the other abusers. And I just got to say, I'm sure a lot of of the fact that Jeffrey Epstein was arrested again in 2019 is thanks to Courtney's... Um, work here, you know, Hmm. trying to appeal this and finally getting it overturned. But Rosie, um, can you read Courtney's quote from the 60 Minutes Australia documentary? Mm -hmm. I think she put it really well, why she continued to fight and still is. She says, justice needs to be served. People need to be held accountable. It's not okay to sexually abuse anybody. So for the past 11 years, I've just been fighting to get that message across that it doesn't matter who you are or if you have money or not, no one deserves to be treated that way. Yeah, and it's so true. If this was any normal sex offender, they would have done so much more time. Like, his charges could have led to 45 years, Mm -hmm. and that's just these light charges they worked out. That's not even charging him with what he really did. And there would be no protections in place for co-conspirators for anyone else. How is that even a thing? Like, has it ever been okay to protect criminals? This whole situation is so wacky. And this is just, this is why there's so much conspiracy theory discussion around Epstein's death. There are a lot of powerful people being accused and a lot of powerful people that could go down if the allegations are true. So if... We don't release an episode next week, and we disappear for some reason. You know why. But we'll get to that in a bit. But first, let's talk about Epstein's release. Epstein was released in 2009, and the next year, Prince Andrew visited Manhattan in New York City for what he says was royal business. He stayed at Epstein's mansion while he was in town and was spotted taking a walk with Epstein and having a chat which is the most infamous photo that comes up in Andrew's interview. But if you haven't seen Andrew's interview, you should definitely watch it. We also reacted to it on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. That is now live. It took us a while to make it, but it's finally <laughs> it's live. It's my fault. <laughs> it was fun. 
he he is uh, not a good liar. But at this time, Epstein was a registered sex offender, and he had pleaded guilty to prostitution of a minor. It was no secret that Epstein was not a wholesome guy. Right. And yet Andrew was okay hanging out with him. Andrew says that he thought it would be best to break up with Epstein in person, and that's why he was talking with him. He said this was a result of his tendency to be, quote, unquote, too honorable. And I, uh, who says that? <laughs> I don't know. He's saying, oh, I'm just too good of a person to break off things over the phone with a convicted sex offender. Right. I had to do it in person because I'm just too honorable. And if you watch Derek Van Shake's video breaking down the body language of Prince Andrew during this interview, I love the way he edits this. <laughs> but Virginia Roberts sees something different when she looks at the photo of him and Epstein. She sees two people who think they can get away with anything and who love having sex with young girls. Yeah. As, as goofy as it is to watch Prince Andrew's interview, you got to remember that based on what Virginia Roberts has said, this guy's a monster. And he hasn't defended himself very well at all. And, you know, him and Jeffrey Epstein have hurt a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry if if uh, it sounds like we're trying to be lighthearted. You know, these are difficult things to talk about. But, yeah, we want to remember this affected a lot of people. In July of 2019, the FBI finally raided Jeffrey Epstein's Manhattan mansion, where so many girls were abused. The mansion has 40 rooms in it, including five bathrooms and around 30 bedrooms. It has a heated sidewalk to melt snow as it falls. Which is something I've always wanted. The reception room of the home is two stories tall, intimidating to anyone who walks inside the 15-foot doors. Can you imagine how expensive it would have been to put heated sidewalks in New York City? I could not That's imagine. crazy. There was a wall covered in photos of Epstein with rich and powerful people like Woody Allen and Bill Clinton. And again, a lot of this stuff would be really intimidating to the girls who would walk in, who would see that this guy knew really powerful people and... I definitely believe this was one of his intimidation tactics. He had a mural painted of himself inside a prison yard, surrounded by corrections officers and barbed wire fences. Epstein told visitors that it was him, and there could always be the possibility that it would be him again. Weird thing to lean into. Super weird. There was also a life-size female doll hanging from a chandelier. Tacky. Super. Remember the hallway that we described in Maria Farmer's episode leading to the reception desk? Apparently, at some point, it was decorated with rows and rows of individually framed eyeballs? That's so <laughs> gross. Imported from England. So as someone walked in, they felt like they were being watched. Well, and obviously, you would be. Yeah, and remember in Maria Farmer's episode, Jeffrey pointed out the little holes in mm -hmm. the wall with cameras in them. Right. There's a human chessboard at the bottom of a staircase with each piece modeled after one of his staff. <laughs> Scantily clad. What the heck is wrong with this guy? Yeah. 
There is also a stuffed poodle and stuffed tiger, as well as a lot more weird art, like in the pa- Palm Beach home. So among the art in the New York mansion was a portrait of Bill Clinton in a dress. And I almost wonder if this was a type of intimidation tactic against Bill Clinton. Um, Virginia Roberts talked about how Epstein would collect dirt on people for blackmail. And the whole world knows Clinton was up to some unsavory stuff during his presidency term. And he has other accusers that have never gotten justice. But could Epstein have been intimidating Clinton by hanging a portrait of him in a dress? Hmm. Who knows? But it is interesting. Very. A portrait of a woman in a red dress with her left breast exposed and in her hand hung behind Epstein's desk. But the most disturbing thing they found in the search were hundreds and perhaps even thousands of photos of naked girls, most appearing to be underage. Remember how Maria had brought those pictures of her sisters, the nude photos, and they disappeared while she was staying with Epstein? Yes. And Epstein also, a lot of the accusers said that he made them pose naked for pictures Mm -hmm. that he would take. So he was just making this collection of naked photos of children. Right. So these photos corroborate a lot of the accusations against Epstein. This is a huge find. Many girls said that he made them get naked and then he took photos of them and would go on to sexually assault them. So there's more than enough proof that many of these accusations against Epstein were true. And now, as you all probably know, Epstein was arrested on July 7th, 2019, just last year. But on July 23rd, at 1.23 a.m., he attempted suicide. Uh, This attempt was caught on surveillance, but that footage somehow was lost because the Metropolitan Correctional Center officials accidentally saved the footage of that time from the wrong floor. (laughs) That's odd, but mistakes happen every it's once in a while. so odd, though. I don't, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, we'll just wait. It gets even odder. Offic- wait. Odder? Never mind. More odd. Officially, Epstein was found in his cell that day, semi-conscious, with injuries to his neck. He told his lawyers that his cellmate, Nicholas... Tartaglione? ...assaulted him. But he claimed that he actually saved Epstein from a suicide attempt. And... An internal investigation cleared Nicholas and ruled it as a suicide attempt. Epstein was placed in an observation cell full of windows on suicide watch. The lights were always on in this room, and nothing that could possibly be used for self-harm was permitted. But after just six days, he was removed from suicide watch. When does that happen? There are hundreds of victims that need justice, and this guy has already tried to off himself. Why would you take him off of Suicide Watch after six days? Because he has the money. Right? Hmm. Interesting. Or other co-conspirators have the money. True. Who knows? (laughs) He was moved to a special unit where he was to have a cellmate and be checked on every 30 minutes. It was reported that Epstein was depositing money into other prisoners' accounts to gain their favor. Well, that was smart. Yeah, so just like the rest of his life, he was bribing people into his favor. Hmm. 
On August 8, 2019, Jeffrey Epstein updated and signed his will, gifting all of his assets to a trust he called the 1953 Trust, because that's the year he was born. The next day, Epstein's cellmate was transferred and no replacement was brought in. Later that evening, Epstein met with his lawyers again. They remember him being upbeat, and at 7.49 p.m., he was escorted back to his cell. Later that night, CCTV footage showed that two guards on duty failed to perform their 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. check on him, and at 10.30, they briefly checked on him. The two guards assigned to perform the routine checks on Epstein were Tova Noel and Michael Thomas, but they had fallen asleep at their desk for three hours that night, and later they falsified those records. Yikes. So there's a coincidence. The guards just happened to not be doing their jobs, but again, everyone makes mistakes. There was that another coincidence, though, the same night. Two separate cameras, which were facing Epstein's cell, both decided to malfunction during this exact same time while the Hmm. guards were sleeping. So there's two odd coincidences. Yeah, and then don't forget about the other footage that was accidentally not saved correctly. Hmm. At 6.30 a.m. on August 10th, the guards were distributing breakfast when they found Epstein in his cell in a kneeling position with a strip of bedsheet wrapped around his neck and tied to the top of his bunk. He was found to have been dead for around two hours at this point. They performed CPR and never took any photos. This is a tough point to question because part of me is like, why didn't they seal the crime scene and just take photos? But I also understand if they were trying to save his life. Hmm, I guess. He was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. But they violated protocol when they moved his body. It should have been treated like a crime scene according to the Bureau of Prisons. So, another coincidence. This crime scene was tampered with. Many people questioned how this was possible because the sheets were basically paper and he had other stronger materials like tubing and wires from his sleep apnea machine. There were there was also medicine bottles sitting upright on the top bunk which you'd think would fall if he was thrusting his entire 185 pounds downward to hang himself. That's really suspicious right there. Mm-hmm. An autopsy conducted on August 11th by the New York City Chief Medical Examiner, Barbara Sampson, concluded that he had hanged himself with a sheet from his bed. But Dr. Michael Baden took a look for himself and found something odd. He found that there were three fractures in Epstein's neck, and in all of his 40 years of conducting nearly a 1,000 autopsies for suicides in the prison system, he's never seen one actual suicide with three broken bones in the neck. According to Baden, this typically only happens with homicide. Also, another weird thing is that the wound was in the center of his neck and not under his mandibles like a typical hanging. Because if your body weight's pulling down, you know, whatever you're trying to hang yourself with would slide to the top of your neck right underneath your jaw, your mandibles. It wouldn't stay right in the middle. But it would if someone was behind you pulling on it. Hmm. Also, the wound on Epstein's neck was much thinner than the strip of the bedsheet that was around his neck. 
It appeared to be done with a wire or a cord, and then the sheet was placed there after the fact. There was also blood on Epstein's neck, but it hadn't been rubbed off onto the sheet, so it appeared to be dry before the sheet was placed there. He also noted that Epstein's legs lacked liv- livid- lividity. lividity, thank you, suggesting that he probably didn't die in the upright position he was found in. Yeah, lividity is basically when your blood pools after your heart stops beating. It pools in the lowermost regions um, of your body at, you know, at a certain point after you die. And the way his lividity was did not line up with the position he was in when he was found. So yet another set of coincidences. There's the guard sleeping not one but two cameras malfunctioning, the first suicide attempt footage being accidentally deleted, and then all of this evidence just not lining up with the official story. Hmm. So once you go over this, it's you know, the damning. crazy conspiracy theories are starting to sound kind of probable. Mm-hmm. No, unfortunately, a gag order was filed against Baden, and he is no longer able to comment his opinion on these findings, which is another, like, really weird thing. Yeah, and again, we can't say for sure. We didn't see it. We're not professionals, you know. We're just presenting the professional opinion of Dr. Baden based on the evidence that he saw, and this is just what we are able to find on the Internet. But... With all these powerful people Epstein had dirt on, it's not inconceivable to me that this could have been a murder. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, late 2019 meme culture would agree. (laughs) But now we're going to go through the remaining victims of Epstein. Um, Out of the 23 that finally had their voices heard after his death, many years too late. Mm -hmm. Um, So... We're going to go through what they had said during that hearing. On August 27, 2019, just over two weeks after Epstein's death, 23 women were finally allowed to speak in court before the charges against him were dismissed following his death. And what a frustratingly bittersweet moment this had to be for these women, because some of them have waited multiple decades to be heard, and now they won't be able to get the justice they deserve. To watch the power be taken away from this man, the way he took their power away from them, would have been not fair, but a lot better than what happened. But there's still hope. Um, They're still hoping to be able to seek justice against the other people who helped and benefited from Epstein. So hopefully they're able to move forward and make this happen hopefully someone with some power will be able to help we're going to read some quotes from the 23 women provided um by buzzfeed news that show how all these people were so heavily impacted by the actions of this one man now 12 of them were unnamed so they'll be referred to as jane doe 1 through 12 but first um courtney wilde who we mentioned earlier She's been tirelessly fighting to get this plea deal overturned and um, hoping to lift that protection from the other offenders surrounding Epstein. Hmm. That day in court, Courtney says, 
Jeffrey Epstein robbed myself and all the other victims of our day in court to confront him one by one. And for that, he is a coward. Courtney Wilde was only 14 years old when she met Jeffrey Epstein. She was still in braces and had been a middle school cheerleading captain. She was abused by Epstein and eventually asked to help recruit other girls just like Virginia. He told her he wanted them as young as she could find them. Yeah. So, it lines up with all the other stories. Mm-hmm. Jane Doe number one said, I still feel like I am learning the ways that he's impacted me. And that's, I mean, that happens. You know, we see that all the time. People who go through horrible things like this, they don't really feel the full impact all at once. You know, it kind of comes out over the years, wouldn't you mm-hmm. say that was your experience? Yeah, totally. The more you process it. Jane Doe, number one, also said, even though Jeffrey Epstein brought it to a grand scale, on some level, a lot of girls could relate to the trauma we are talking about. Mm-hmm. You want me to read some of these? Sure. So Jane Doe, number two, said, I think each one of us has a different story and different circumstances for why we stayed in it. But for me, I think he was really strategic in how he approached each of us. Things happen slowly over time. It was almost like that analogy of a frog being in a pan of water and slowly turning the flame up. Hmm. A lot of us were in very vulnerable situations and in extreme poverty, circumstances where we didn't have anyone on our side. Hmm. So yeah, he was taking advantage of girls that were disadvantaged already and offering them this facade of money Mm -hmm. and, you know, a steady job and then taking advantage of them. Jane Doe number three said, my world kind of spiraled after that. I stopped going on modeling castings. I gained weight. I became depressed. I stopped going out with my friends. And only five months after I had been in New York City to pursue my dream, I left. I left the modeling industry. I left New York City and I totally switched my career path. And this is what we saw, too, with Maria Farmer. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking that. You know? Jane Doe, Jane Doe number four says, We will always carry irreparable damage and pain throughout our lives after this. It's something that never, that's never going to go away. Whoever we marry in our life, whatever future we have in our life, is always going to be something that's always there for us. And it's hmm. true. Just mm-hmm. And back to what I said before, Maria Farmer was actually represented by her sister Annie at this hearing because, you know, she was that affected by this still 20, over 20 years later, what, 23 years later? It was still taking such a toll on her. Jane Doe number five said... You paid for your freedom. You violated my rights. You should have to pay for them just as anyone else. You got a plea deal no one else would have been able to get. You used your money to get out of paying the price for your actions. It's really true. Mm -hmm. Now, the next one was Shante Davies. Uh, Shante did an interview with NPR where she shared some of the details of her encounters with Epstein. So we're going to go over a little bit of that before we... Um, share her statement. 
Shantae Davies was a 21-year-old massage student when her teacher asked her to come along to an appointment with his client, Ghislaine Maxwell. After meeting Shantae, Ghislaine got in contact with her teacher and offered her a job working as a masseuse in Palm Beach. So very similar to Virginia's experience and sounds like a great opportunity. Like Virginia, she still felt inexperienced and her first reaction was to pass on the job. But the massage teacher told her that Ghislaine was a very wealthy and prominent socialite who was a regular client of his and it would be a great opportunity. Ghislaine picked up Shantae and on the way to the house, she said that her partner Jeffrey was sort of a Ralph Lauren type and asked if she was into that type. Shantae found this question really odd, yeah, as basi- we all would. <laughs> yeah, basically asking Shantae if she would be attractive to Ghislaine's partner. And let's say it correctly, Ralph Lauren. I'm not fancy enough. <laughs> Neither am I. Then she just told Shantae to do whatever he asks and she would be fine. But we've seen how this all plays out before. When she first arrived at the house, she got sick with stomach issues. But eventually, one of Jeffrey's assistants knocked on Shantae's door and told her that he was ready for his massage. She was shown to the massage room and started to prepare. Then Jeffrey came waltzing in and threw his bathrobe off, got on the table, and started looking her up and down and asking her questions. Within minutes, he was slipped over on his back and asked her if she minded if he touched himself. Shantae explained that she also, like Virginia, came from a background of abuse where she was taught to look the other way when bad stuff happened. Hmm. Again, it's the cycle of abuse. And Epstein preyed on these vulnerable girls that were already a little broken. Soon he had finished up and got off the table, jumped into the shower and said, Okay, that's all now. Thank you. Shantae was shocked by what had just happened, but she was hesitant to tell anyone because she felt like Jeffrey was doing this behind Ghislaine's back at the time and Shantae felt guilty for letting it happen. Obviously, this isn't her fault. She was blindsided by a rich and powerful man who is now her boss. It's like that episode of Lie to Me. And if you don't watch that show, we definitely recommend it. It's on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Super good. But they talked about how even if rape isn't violent, if it's based on a power imbalance and implied threats, it's still rape. I think it's episode two. It's based on a military case, but... They made a really good point in that episode. Mm-hmm. After that first encounter, she didn't see Jeffrey for a while after that. Ghislaine sent her home to L.A. and came and visited her a few times for her own massages. Now, this whole time, she thought Ghislaine had no idea about what was happening and felt loyalty to her. Because not knowing the full scope, she pitied Ghislaine. She was eventually asked to come work on Epstein's private island called Little St. James. Shortly after she arrived, she was raped by Epstein during a massage. He raped her a few times over the three years that she worked for him. Yeah, she actually released a bunch of photos that she had taken on the island. But earlier we mentioned Bill Clinton was on the Lolita Express, and Shantae has a picture with him. But she says that he was a complete gentleman to her, so that's good to know. Mm. But... We're going to read a direct quote from Shantae from after the NPR interviewer asked her why she decided to come forward. She said, 
So ultimately, it ended up ruining my life in every capacity. It's affected my health, my family, my emotional and mental well-being, and ultimately, even jobs. You know, I've been offered all these amazing jobs of a lifetime that I fought really hard to get and I beat other candidates for. And each time the job would be offered to me, it would then be retracted because of my connection to Jeffrey Epstein. Really? So that's what led me to finally come forward because I had just reached a point where I was like, you know, this man was out buying second islands and second airplanes just to show off while I was struggling to feed myself and could even get myself a good job because of him, you know? That's so sad that she was denied jobs because she was connected to him, even though he abused her. In her day at court, she said, I began my massage trying not to let him smell my fear and obvious discomfort. But before I knew what was happening, he grabbed onto my wrist and tugged me towards the bed. I tried to pull away, but he was unbuttoning my shorts and pulling my body onto his already half-naked body faster than I could think. I was searching for words, but all I could say was, no, please, stop. But that just seemed to excite him more. Yeah. So, Shantae had a... She was really affected by this, and we appreciate her sharing her experience there. But this next one is from Anushka Georgiou. She said, something I think is very important to communicate is that loss of innocence, trust, and joy that is not recoverable. Now, personally, I don't think loss of innocence is a real thing. Like, you don't lose your innocence when someone abuses you. But people will, because of the stigma, make you feel like you have, you know, people that don't understand what it means to be abused. But... I mean, you've experienced that yourself, haven't you, Rosie? Yeah. I, People yeah. around you that don't really understand oh, how yeah. you were manipulated into that situation? Definitely. 100%. And they always put part of the blame on you. So that's really sad. But she continues, The abuse spanning several years was devaluing beyond measure, and it affected my ability to form and maintain healthy relationships, both in my work and my personal life. He could not begin to fathom what he took from us. And there's so many people that he did this to. Such a huge scope. The next one is from Michelle Licata. All right. Michelle says, What happened to me occurred many years ago when I was in high school, but it still affects my life. I was told then that Jeffrey Epstein was going to be held accountable, but he was not. In fact, the government worked out a secret deal and didn't tell me about it. The fact that I mattered this time and the other victims mattered is what counts. Yeah, she was around when the initial charges came out in 2006, and she was one of the victims that was not notified about the plea deal. So frustrating. The next one is Teresa J. Helm. She says, that experience for the last 17 years has been a dark corner in my story. So I'm here today because it is time to bring light to that darkness. And it's time to replace that darkness with light. It's poetic. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. The next one, will you say the name for me? Virginia Roberts Jufre. Jufre. And of course, that's who we talked about in episode 98. Yes, you're right. 
He will not have his day in court, but the reckoning of accountability has begun, supported by the voices of these brave and beautiful women in this courtroom today. The reckoning must not end, it must continue. He did not act alone, and we, the victims, know that. Virginia kind of reminds me of Elizabeth Smart. You know, like she's Mm -hmm. just a warrior for the victims. (laughs) And, you know, she's just got that strong, confident vibe about her. Now, the next one is Sarah Ransom. She said, I would like to acknowledge and extend my gratitude to the prosecutors from the Southern District of New York for pursuing justice on behalf of the victims. Please, please finish what you have started. Mm. We, the victims, are still here, prepared to tell the truth, and we all know he did not act alone. We are survivors, and the pursuit of justice should not abate. Mm. So, yeah, they're still pushing to try to get justice for this. Annie Farmer, who is speaking on behalf of her sister Maria Farmer, said... Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell not only assaulted her, but as we're hearing from so many of these brave women here today, they stole her dreams and her livelihood. She risked her safety in 1996, so many years ago, to report them, to no avail. And it is heartbreaking to her and to me that all this destruction has been wrought since that time. I mean, can you imagine reporting something you, if you were victimized by someone and you reported it and they ignored you, mm. that is so frustrating. It's so messed up. And, I mean, Annie came to this trial to speak on behalf of Maria, but um, Annie was also abused by him. If yeah. You go back and listen to episode 97. Oh, 96. I think so, yeah. Yeah. We actually put an addendum onto that episode after we released it with the rest of Annie's story. So if you listened to it when we first released it, you might not have heard Annie's part of it. But this next one is from Marika Chartouni. She said, she told me he went to Cooper Union. He was a mathematical genius. That he had favorite girls that he would like to take to Chanel for 15-minute all-you-can-buy shopping trips. She told me that his right-hand person had connections to the arts and the fashion world, and she could help me. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing she's talking about Ghislaine Maxwell here. But making all these promises of this luxurious lifestyle Mm -hmm. that that would be provided to these girls and that they'd get great jobs in the fashion world or the arts, you know, that's manipulation. Uh, The next one's from Jennifer Arose who was 14 years old when she was she got involved with Epstein. She said, He robbed me of my dreams. He robbed me of my chance to pursue a career I always adored. He stole my chance at really feeling love because I was so scared to trust anyone for so many years that I had such severe anxiety. I didn't want to leave my house, let alone my bed. And remember, with Maria, she had... I mean, this is similar to Maria because she had put in so much work into her art career and it was finally taking off. And when she got involved with Epstein, she was promised that he would help her take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. But in the end, all the work she had put into building her art career was taken away from her. And, you know, she lost her inspiration. And 
you know, uh, it's so sad the impact that his actions had on these girls. She went on to say, the fact I will never have a ch- oh. the fact that I will never have a chance to face my predator in court eats away at my soul. Even in death, Epstein is trying to hurt me. I had hoped to at last get an apology, but this evil man had no remorse or caring for what he did to anyone. <sighs> Can't imagine the frustration. Um, Jane Doe 6 said, Jeffrey Epstein stole my innocence. He gave me a life sentence of guilt and shame. I do not consider myself a victim. I see myself a survivor. Hmm. Jane Doe number 7 says, I used to be relatively carefree, inquisitive, hopeful, and excited about life, but my life has changed because of Jeffrey Epstein. My perspective on life became very dark when I was unknowingly recruited by one of his agents. Jeffrey Epstein ruined me. Jane Doe number eight says, I cannot say that I am pleased he committed suicide, but I am at peace knowing he will not be able to hurt anyone else. However, a sad truth remains. I, along with other people, will never have an answer as to why. I will never have an apology for the wrongdoing. And most importantly, Epstein will not be justly sentenced for his crimes. Mm-hmm. Tiala Davies says, I was going to start this statement by saying that I was a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. But that's not the case. I'm still a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. I'm still a victim because the fear of not being heard stopped me from telling my story for so many years. I'm still a victim because I am fearful for my daughters and everyone's daughters. I'm still a victim because the 17-year-old Tiala was manipulated into thinking she found someone who cared, someone who wanted to help. Hmm. That's deep. Yeah. (sighs) Jane Doe number nine said... When I was 15 years old, I flew on Jeffrey Epstein's plane to Zorro Ranch, where I was sexually molested by him for many hours. This is similar to Annie Farmer's story. She says, What I remember most vividly was him explaining to me how beneficial the experience was for me and how much he was helping me to grow. (sighs) Disgusting. Mm. See, he, he always made it seem like he was doing them a favor. Right. She says, I remember feeling so small and powerless, especially after he positioned me by laying me on his floor so that I was confronted by all the framed photographs on his dresser of him smiling with wealthy celebrities and politicians. Gross. Intimidation. This guy's such a monster, and he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Jane Doe number 10 said... Epstein targeted and took advantage of me, a young girl whose mother had recently died a horrific death and whose family structure had deteriorated. His actions placed me, a young girl, into a downward spiral to the point where I purchased a gun and drove myself to an isolated place to end my suffering. Oh my gosh. So this girl, again, like we mentioned, he took advantage of girls who were in vulnerable spots who were already broken and he knew he could use them and because of what he did she wanted to take her own life jane doe 11 and uh 
this is tough to get through, but I mean, all these girls had to live through it. So, I mean, the least we can do is try to share as many voices as we can. But Jane Doe 11 says, he promised me that he would write me a letter of recommendation for Harvard if I got the grades and scores needed for admission. His word was worth a lot, he assured me, as he was in the midst of funding and leading Harvard's studies on the human brain. And the president was his friend. <sighs> I had never even kissed a boy before I met him, and never throughout the horrific abuse did Jeffrey Epstein kiss me even once. Wow. When he stole my virginity, he washed my entire body compulsively in the shower and then told me, if you're not a virgin, I will kill you. What? And then I wasn't a virgin anymore. Wow. That's terrifying. Hmm. That's the first time I've heard those details. Yeah, that's crazy. Jane Doe, number 12. They told me to go upstairs and directed me to Jeffrey Epstein's office. Mr. Epstein had a white robe on, and we chatted very briefly. I had my portfolio photos, but he didn't even look at, look at them. Suddenly, he took his robe off and got close to me. I got up to leave, but the door was locked. Scary. So Jeffrey Epstein ruined lives, and he never had to face justice for it. It's just so sad to see what a huge impact he had and just how mishandled it was legally because of his immense wealth and power, which he shoved in the face of his victims. I mean, he made that one girl face the photos he had with powerful people. You can't tell me that wasn't on purpose. Oh, no. I had, yeah. And even more surprising is how he got his wealth. I mean, we've told his backstory over on Patreon, and we've also reacted to a breakdown of Prince Andrew's body language during his infamous interview, which mm -hmm. we mentioned. So those are both over on Patreon. But, I mean, his background, he didn't earn his wealth. He no. pretty much took it away from the founder of Victoria's Secret, and um, he basically just charmed his way into it scammed his way into it yeah he's a professional scam artist and just total monster mm -hmm. so thank you i believe candace recommended this to us it was it it was an intimidating case to jump into because there's so many people affected and we don't want to leave anyone out so i mean we wanted to wrap it up so we could get on to other stories but I mean, this had to be a long episode because we wanted to to finish telling it the best we can. So, yeah, thank you for suggesting that again, Candice. We appreciate it. Yeah, that that's a big story. Uh -huh. You could have a whole podcast just about this story. I know. Well, there are whole podcasts out there, you know. Um, but, whew, all right, well... We can finally wash our hands of Epstein's nonsense. For 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, wash your hands for 20 seconds. <laughs> and we mentioned this in our video we did over on Patreon last week with Prince Andrew, but um, we want to mention it here too. Go look up the 
video about how soap destroys the coronavirus <laughs> or COVID-19 because it's really interesting to see how soap works and why you wash your hands <laughs> so for 20 seconds. So anyway, go check that out. Stay healthy. Take care of yourselves. Please mm-hmm. don't infect anyone. You know, be smart. Um, we're all in this together. We're all trying to do our best. You know, it's going to be rough. It's really rough to be isolated and be stuck at home. Even though we both still work. (laughs) Well, yeah, we do, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people can't. Right. And uh, a lot of people are sick. You just told me before we started recording that um, the U.S. just broke the record for the most cases in one country. It did. So... Not good. That's terrifying. And crazy because the U.S. had, the U.S. was able to learn from all these other countries that were infected first. Yeah, there's a lot of dummies that live here, though. Yeah. But I also think some countries aren't reporting all their numbers. True. But who knows? I just, I hope that everyone listening to this is still healthy and You know, if you are going through a rough experience, feel free to reach out to us and let us know. But anyway, I think that's about it. This has been a long episode, so we're going to wrap it up. Because I was so bad at talking. (laughs) Oh, it's it's all right. You've had a long day. Thank you. So, but, (laughs) all right. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.